Hello, and thank you for tuning in to New Glasgow Christian Church. My name is Stephen Weatherby, and I'm the pastor here at NGCC, a small rural church with a big heart located in central Prince Edward Island, Canada. This week, we are continuing in our series of messages based on Mark Moore's devotional book, Core 52. Each week, we will explore a key theme from scripture, providing practical insights and reflections to deepen our understanding of God's Word. Join us as we uncover the foundational principles that shape our Christian walk and discover how they can impact our lives today. So I got a surprise. We actually have completed our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is the apex or the pinnacle of Jesus' teachings on morality. And so these messages that we've been going through um, on the Sermon on the Mount are of such large importance for us in our faith. And this next section of Core 52 is no different. Uh, This next section is called Bottom Line. But what does that mean? Well, in business, the bottom line is the final total of an account, the ultimate outcome. It's where you stand currently. This is the bottom line. And all of our core verses for the next four weeks, or four lessons, come from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as you may know, Matthew was an accountant. In fact, he was a tax collector. And so he dealt with people's bottom lines every day. And so he, of all people, would have snapped to attention when Jesus revealed the deep truths of where we stand, what our bottom line is with God and where the world stands. Now, so far in Core 52, we've dealt with a lot of background themes, context that explains everything, that explains where we are, how we got here. Uh, It shows us reality from God's eyes. And so now we've reached to the Gospels. So in the Gospels, Jesus is here. He is present with us. He's teaching. And most importantly, he is creating a new way for us to be right with God. And so where does that leave us? What is our reality now in this truth? With this option of restoration before us, Jesus lays out these core verses. Our bottom line. This is where we stand and where the world stands. So these are important weeks. These are very important weeks. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to be invited to follow Jesus? What is happening in the world around us, not just physically, but more so spiritually? And finally, what does that mean for us? What is our mission? What are we called to do as Christians, as the church? Those are the questions we're going to be looking at in the next four lessons. Uh, We'll be taking a break next week, of course, for Fred. Um, So we'll start today, and then we'll pick back up November 12th. But this is what we're going to be looking at. This is our bottom line as the church. So today our core is the cross. Again, most of the time our themes have been learning about what the core is. But we all know what the cross is. We've seen it. Uh, It's on everything in the Christian world. We've heard of the cross. We've probably watched movies about it around Easter. We know what the cross is. But today, it's much more about what the cross means for us. 
Because sure, the cross is what Jesus was crucified on. It's a torture device. It's an execution device. But why do we talk so much about the cross itself? The actual uh, symbol of it, the, the, the thing that it is. Why do people wear the cross on necklaces? Why do we put it on church buildings? What does it mean for us today? Well, first of all, you should know that everyone has to do something with the cross because everyone has to do something with Jesus. You can't help it. You don't, you don't have a choice because we are responsible for what we know. We are responsible for the knowledge that we hold. And you and I, we have heard of Jesus. We've heard of who he claimed to be and we have heard of what he did. And specifically, we've heard about the cross. And so we have to do something with that. We have to decide what it means. We have to decide who is the Son of Man. And that's not just limited to us gathered here today. And that's not just limited to those gathered in churches today. The whole world has to decide what to do with Jesus. The whole modern world measures time and dates by the day that he entered into this world. Everyone has to do something with Jesus. Even the choice to dismiss him is a choice. When it comes to Jesus, no one gets to sit on the fence. So as we lead up to our core verse this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And in chapter 16, Jesus has the disciples on a bit of a trip. Uh, They're actually on the farthest trip they've been on in Jesus' ministry. They're in a remote city called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northernmost part of Israel. So I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And that's the important question. Who do we say that he is? Now Peter has the answer. In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he makes his confession. Peter confesses that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, the rescuer. So they're not waiting anymore. This is him. He's arrived, a savior who would deliver them. And Jesus responds to Peter by affirming this truth in the highest way possible. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right, so just pause for a minute. Uh, take a trip back, oh, it would be a couple months now, uh, when we talked about the word Messiah. That was our theme, our core. We talked about this title and what it means. The word is Christ, Messiah, or Anointed One. Those all come from the same thing. They're all titles. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is the King, the King of Israel. And he was right. But his understanding of what that meant was not right. It was wrong. Because Jesus is not the kind of king that Peter probably was expecting. He's not the kind of king that Peter probably thought that he wanted. 
Jesus clarifies his messianic rule very clearly in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're coming to our midweek Bible study, hopefully we'll get to that part before Christmas. We'll see. Um, But it's uh, very interesting in the Gospel of Mark how this all is unfolded and portrayed. But one thing we know is that the disciples were expecting an earthly king who would destroy Israel's enemies. But as we know today with the full picture, all the context, Jesus is a savior who would die on a cross for their sins as well as the sins of their enemies. So let's keep going. Next, Jesus explains this path to him, to them that they would take. So this is what it actually means that Jesus is the king of Israel. In verses 21 to 22, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is another one of those places where the Bible translates things poorly. Uh, We read this, we think of Peter as the Apostle Peter. He's this big holy person. But at this point in time, he is a fisherman who Jesus asked to follow him. He's pretty rough around the edges. The real literal translation of that would be a lot closer to something like when hell freezes over. (laughs) That is his response to Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to be captured and crucified. He's like, absolutely not (laughs) in the most crude way possible. So, Picture this. Peter goes from getting a gold star from Jesus to rebuking him that strongly. (laughs) It's not a good plan for him. Now, of course, it makes sense if we consider Peter's perspective. If Peter's expecting Jesus to become an earthly king, to destroy the enemies of Israel, then Jesus dying, obviously that messes up his plan a little bit. Because how does a suffering king kick out the Romans? How does a dead man ascend to the throne of Israel? What kind of Messiah of the Israel people would be killed by his own religious leaders? So for Peter, this probably sounds like all of his hopes fading right before his eyes. And so his response objecting to Jesus this strongly, it's the wrong response But I can also understand where he's coming from when I understand his perspective. Now Jesus' response is kind of the the, the scary point in this passage. Uh, In verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is arguably one of the harshest rebukes that Jesus gives to anyone during his ministry. I mean, he has some pretty aggressive words for the Pharisees, but he doesn't call them Satan. You know, brood of vipers, sure, but not Satan. So why would Jesus respond like that to one of his own disciples? Especially Peter. Peter was was his golden boy. We didn't read it, but Jesus, in the passage, the part that we didn't read, Jesus gives him a nickname, the rock, and then tells him that he would be the foundation on which the church would be built. So why would Jesus then turn around and call him Satan and tell him that he is a hindrance to him in his ministry? Because it was so 
emphatically important that Jesus protect his path to the cross. This rebuke that he gives Peter is in the same category as when Jesus rebukes the demons who confess his identity in Mark 3. We just read that this week in our Bible study. Or it's similar to when Jesus confronts Satan in Matthew chapter 4 when he's in the wilderness. They were trying to derail Jesus' mission. They were trying to steer him away from the cross. Mark Moore says in the devotional for this week, rather than the gruesome call to sacrifice, Satan and Peter urged Jesus to assert his divine prerogatives to avoid the human experience of pain and suffering. So Peter, unlike Satan, Peter did not understand the full implications of what he was saying or what he was trying to do. But when we look at it from Jesus' perspective, his response begins to make sense. At the end of the day, as much as Peter loved Jesus, as much as Peter desired to follow Jesus, Peter still has his own kingdom in mind. And that is why he objects to the cross here. All right, so now let's turn that question around and ask ourselves the same. Who do you say that Jesus is? I hope that all of us here would confess him as our Lord and our Messiah. Peter did that. But what about the cross? Do you object to the cross? And to be clear, I am not talking about Jesus' cross. I'm talking about your cross. That is what is called the call of the cross. It is a tough call on our lives. That brings us to our core verse this morning. And I'm going to read this in NIV instead of the translation given. The next thing Jesus says to his disciples is this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So that is our bottom line this week. This is what the cross means for us today. After everything we've looked at, this is where we stand. Now remember the context here. Jesus just called Peter Satan for trying to steer him away from the cross. After speaking of his own impending death, which would have shocked the disciples to their core, he turns it around to their disciples. And remember, it's hard when we read scripture to remember. This isn't actors reading lines. This isn't uh, some story someone wrote. This was real life. This happened. This would have been jarring. Picture yourself as one of the disciples here. You're already shocked that Jesus is going to die. And now he says, well, if you want to be my disciple, you better pick up your cross too and prepare yourself. They weren't even comfortable with the idea of Jesus dying, much less being crucified. Crucifixion was a criminal's death. It was meant to humiliate and prolong and torture. And now he is telling them they too must take up their cross and follow him. And we're called to do the same. And we don't like to think of it that way, if we're being honest. At communion, we remember Jesus' death, but we skip over the part where we're supposed to examine ourselves. Maybe some of us at some point in our life or even now have even worn a cross around our neck and failed to be reminded of what that cross means. 
It is a reminder that we also are called to crucify our old selves. This spring we studied the letter to the Galatians, and maybe these words will be familiar from the Apostle Paul. In verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think Mark Moore really hits this on the head in the devotional this week. I try not to steal too much from him, but it was just too good not to read. He says, the cross isn't merely what Jesus did for us. It is what he modeled for us. Being a disciple is not just receiving what Jesus did. It's imitating how he lived. And listen, I think as Christians, sometimes our familiarity with the cross can be an obstacle to us. It it starts to lose its sting. We talk about it so much. This is not something easy we're talking about. I'm not just saying this and saying, this is easy. Why isn't everyone just doing this? Like, this is hard. This is hard stuff. For all we talk about the cross, we know surprisingly little about this form of execution because it was shameful and rarely discussed. Even more uncomfortable for you and I is what this means practically. What does it mean to die to ourself, to be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live? That is the serious of our commitment to Jesus when we confess him as our Savior and as our Lord. Uh, in, in Romans 6, it describes this. We die with him when we're baptized. We are raised to life. We put to death our old self and the days of us being in charge. Not my will be done, not my desires, not my plans and hopes, not my kingdom, but his will, his kingdom, his plans. And so if we are not as serious about it as death, Jesus says we cannot follow him. Matthew 10 verse 38 says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now you've heard the expression, one foot in the grave. (laughs) That doesn't count here. (laughs) You can't do that. It's cheating. Uh, It's not an option with Jesus. We die fully to ourselves and take up our cross as Jesus required. So this is a full, a complete, and a permanent move. It's not dying and being raised to a better version of ourselves. It is being raised to Jesus living out through us. And so there's no halfway in, one foot in way to do that. Matthew 16 verse 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the old self wants to resist this, and that is logical. That makes sense. It's self-preservation. We don't want to die to ourselves. We like the things we like. But this is how Jesus' kingdom works. And through these many weeks, we've kind of used the phrase upside-down kingdom. And I haven't really drawn attention to it, but um, that really is kind of the nature of how Jesus' kingdom works. Everything is upside down, flipped on its head to the logic of the world. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. Like holding tightly to a fistful of sand, you will watch it slip through your fingers. But the one who loses their life for Jesus 
the one who is crucified with Christ, who dies to themselves, that person will find true life, eternal life. And the amazing thing is, this doesn't just have implications for you as the saved person. Our own cross, much like Jesus' cross, has a significant impact on the world around you. It doesn't just transform you, it actually affects those you come into contact with as well. And so when we live this out, when we live the transformed life, like we see in Romans 12, it impacts our marriages, our families, our workplaces, our schools and our communities and beyond. So just imagine what those places would look like if we lived this out every day. If we all chose to take up our cross and follow him each and every day. So as we conclude this morning, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is a lot. This is not light stuff. Jesus asks for a lot. In fact, he asks us for everything. It can be overwhelming. So here is where I think we can all start today. What is one area in your life that you know you have not nailed to the cross yet? Just think about that for a minute. One thing, one area, one piece of your life, one piece of your heart that you have not surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you've given him your marriage, but not your work. Maybe you've given him your family, but not your finances. Maybe you've given him so much of yourself. But you know this one area in your life, the one you're probably thinking about right now as I speak, that is not dead. It is old life, and you know it. You control it, not the Holy Spirit. What is the first step you can take this week, today, to nail that to the cross? What are you going to do this week to die to yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus? Thanks for tuning in. We hope that this week's teaching was a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you live in the New Glasgow area, we would love for you to come out and to join us for our Sunday gathering. For information on service times, location, and more, check out our website at ngcc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.